Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 48 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled The Shipwreck, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 44. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is a fascinating chapter, and I remember reading one scholar saying this is the most detailed and accurate description of nautical life in the Mediterranean in the first century in ancient literature. Hmm. There's no other writing like it. Um, the, the, the specific vocabulary, the actions of the sailors in certain settings, all of that is really quite remarkable. But overall, what we have is we have the story of the, of the, of the travel, the movement of Paul from Palestine to Rome. And it was tremendously challenging. And in the midst of it, in the midst of literally a hurricane, to see um, the amazing providence of God that not one of the people on the ship drowned and Paul himself was protected. And then to see uh, very powerfully how God orchestrated all of those things to put Paul on, on a pedestal and to put his faith on display for us is a beautiful thing. So it's going to be pretty exciting to walk through it. Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 27 as we begin. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, We sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arriving with difficulty off Canidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow— Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bows stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Andy, what's the significance of the we and us language that we see in this account? As we've noted before, it means that Luke is now with the with the group, um, and so that's that's you know we've seen that a number of times, like in in Acts sixteen and other places. What do we learn about the centurion responsible for Paul, and what's the nature of Paul's relationship with him in this account? Well, just like all the other centurions in the New Testament, good guy, you know probably in heaven. I don't know. I mean, but just, they always seem to relate well either to Jesus or to Paul or to someone. They just seem to be good people. Hmm. And so um, he's he seems to be no different. He's sympathetic to Paul and, um, you know, tries, uh, he has a good reputation. Paul has a good reputation with him, et cetera. Seems to be a connection, good connection. What does verse 3 teach us about Julius, and what does it teach us about the needs of prisoners at that time? All right, so it says Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that he might provide for his needs. So in general, the the captors um, that were holding prisoners did not feel any responsibility to feed or care for their prisoners. That was on you and on your support system. 
make matters worse, they often used the guilt by association way to arrest your support system. Mm. So that made it made the whole thing pretty hard. And that's part of the one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is don't be afraid to care for those in prison as if you were fellow prisoners. So at any rate, uh, Julius is, is of a mind to make certain that Paul's friends can care for his needs. I think he cares very much for Paul. And so he goes to the, you know, they're in Sidon, the, the partner city with Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, uh, so that Christians there can care for him. How does Luke's narrative help us understand ancient travel, and why do you think Luke makes so much of the intense difficulty of this travel? Well, first of all, what we need to know is how note is how many proper nouns there are. There are a lot of capitalized words here, and they absolutely line up with uh, maps and research done in secular sources of the time. What does that tell us? Book of Acts is history. And so that extends to the supernatural things as well. When Luke writes that that Peter, you know, raised Dorcas from the dead or that handkerchiefs were brought and whoever touched them were healed or whatever, it's true. Uh, it's, just, it's just history because it's not written like a myth. And so, you know, in, in Luke chapter 2, we've got Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this took place while Quirinius was governor of Judea, et cetera. That's just history. You mm-hmm. can look all that stuff up. Well, you get the same thing in Acts 27. You've got all these proper nouns. You can you can put, you can can put connect the dots almost literally on the map. You went, They went from here to here to here to here. Now, one of the things is they were afraid to sail in the open sea. And by the open sea is you can't see land. So you're just out there and, you know, they just did not have the technology that we do. Hmm. One of the major problems, as a matter of fact, Isaac Newton said it was the only problem he ever studied in his life that made his head hurt was the problem of longitude. Where are we east to west? Nobody knew. North to south you could get uh, because of certain techniques. Even ancient mariners knew how to find out um, latitude but they couldn't get longitude. Christopher Columbus thought the world was a lot smaller than it really was. They didn't know where they were until finally an English clockmaker made a clock that could keep accurate time no matter what the the weather conditions or the heaving deck of the sea and all that. You can't have a pendulum clock on the heaving deck of a sea. So this guy <laughs> came up with a basically a, a pocket watch that did the job. And so they could keep accurate time and compare it to London time and they could know where they were east to west. Um, But back then, they didn't have any of that technology. And so they were afraid to leave uh, sight of land. They tried to get close to islands. They tried to get close to the shoreline to crawl along the the coast. They did that. But from time to time, they had no choice but to lose sight of land and sail as best they could tell in a straight line across the open sea. Hmm. Now, verse 9 stands as a foreshadowing in Luke's account. What is the danger? What does Paul do about it? And what does Paul's action show about him? Well, I think they had somewhat like the farmer's almanac. They would have seasonal understanding of weather patterns. So they would keep records of of it being the stormy season or the rainy season or whatever. And, and that was just the climate over the years. Now, they didn't know day to day. But the later it got in the year, the more dangerous the weather would get. And they just knew that. And said, look, you don't want to be on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, beyond such and such a date. And because of the slow headway they had made, as depicted in the earlier verses, and the headwinds are against them and all that, by now it's pretty late in the year. And Paul says, look, this is not the time to be venturing out uh, toward Italy. Uh, We need to just hunker down here and... um, and, and wait until the season comes. Um, 
and he was an experienced uh, traveler. He'd been on on the Mediterranean Sea many, many times. And later he's going to say, basically, I told you so. Hmm. You know, this is the very thing I warned you about and you didn't listen to me. Uh, but instead, they did listen to the centurion. They listened to the owner of the ship. Um and some other, they had they had economic reasons to go, uh, but Paul says, "Look, nautically and uh, uh, based on the climate and weather patterns, we are in we are facing grave danger to our lives and to the ship and cargo." What else do we learn in verses eleven and twelve about why the centurion didn't take Paul's advice and the reasons they had for taking such a risk to sail so late into the stormy season? Again, these are just amazing details that Luke gives. Luke is such a historian. He's like, look, this harbor is unsuitable uh, for us to winter in. It's like, well, what does that mean? I mean, there's just so many nautical ideas that are brought up in this chapter. Um, it's just really, it's really pretty cool. Mm. But he said, look, this is an unsuitable winter harbor. We need to move on in any case. And so the pilot, uh, pilot's usually the one in charge. The captain of the ship has authority, but the pilot has knowledge. And so once the once the ship's underway, the pilot basically ran the deal. Uh, these pilots kept rudders, which would be basically notebooks of specific famous harbors like Alexandria or Rome. How do you get in? Um, like you think about a harbor master now, they would send out tugboats and they'd take oil uh, you know, tankers or other super ships and they would take over because they know the harbor. Pilots were like that, only they would have an encyclopedic knowledge of various famous ports. They'd mm. know how to get into Corinth or how to get into this place or that place. And the pilot said, look, this is what we got to do. And so they're not listening to Paul, who's just a random guy. So what ultimately convinced the ship captain and centurion to try for Phoenix? And how is this circumstance misleading? Yeah, well, Phoenix was a good winter harbor. Uh, it had a good harbor in Crete, facing it says both southwest and northwest, and so we're gonna we're gonna try to try to go there. But they thought, hey, we can make it, mm. and they didn't make it. So. Yeah, verse thirteen says, "When the south wind blew gently, mm -hmm. supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete." So they had some indications from the weather. Perhaps it's a good time for us to go, mm -hmm. and they do so. Mm -hmm. Now, without warning, a strong wind struck the ship with extreme violence. Mm. What was the effect on the ship, and why did they just give way to the wind? Yeah, so this is a hurricane, and, and those of you that have, you know, certainly you look at the Weather Channel, you look at, at the news when a big hurricane hits. I mean, you think about massive, massive uh, winds. Um, when I read Sebastian Junger's book, uh, Perfect Storm, he said a fully mature hurricane is the most, by far, the most powerful event on planet Earth. Mm. There's nothing else that even remotely compares to its power. So you're talking about the movement of wind over hundreds of miles of diameter um, in a big kind of circular, uh, circular pattern. You've seen the, you know, what the hurricane looks like from, from satellite photos. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a massively powerful thing. And this thing went on for days. So this is a big time storm. So they, you know, the, the gentle wind begins to blow, but that's actually just the beginning of the hurricane that's coming. So mm. they think, hey, we got this. And so they weighed anchor and they moved along the shore of Crete trying to get to Phoenix, which is on the far western part of the island, but they never make it. And so this, this wind of hurricane force comes sweeping down from the island and just knocks them. And they don't have any power. I mean, you think about the heaving seas, what it was doing to the water. You're talking about about just seas that were dozens of feet high and they're going up, they're going down. It's a terrifying, terrifying situation. And they they had no power against it. They just had to give way to it. And so it says very powerfully in verse 15, the ship um, 
gave way to it and was driven along. By the way, it's a note here, um, Acts 27, 15, uh, were driven along. That Greek word there is the exact same word that Peter uses to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Um, you know, where he says, uh, no scripture ever had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along hmm. by the Holy Spirit. Same Greek word. So kind of like a ship, they put up the, the writers of scripture, put up the sails of their personality and the sails of their circumstances that they were writing into, and they were driven along by the spirit where the spirit wanted them to go. Wow. So it's a pretty cool picture of inspiration. In this case, it's literally physical. The ship was driven along by the wind. They could not fight it. What more do we learn about the dire situation in which Paul and all those on board the ship found themselves in verses 16 through 20? Yeah, so as they're moving along, the, 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 the sea is beating on the wooden hull. And there's just only so much of that beating that the ship can take. It's going to get crushed. They're afraid. I mean, you could hear the creaking of the timbers. And you can imagine being out in the middle of the, the ocean uh, at, with, with the churning waves 15, 20 feet high, you're going up, you're going down. It's just overwhelming. You have no power to control it. And you're hearing ominous creaks and cracks in the timbers. And you're like, wow. I mean, the Mayflower, actually, one of the main timbers in the Mayflower cracked en route to New England. And they uh, like, luckily had a screw that was used for a printing press that they could use to buttress the central beam and support it so they could finish the journey. Mm. So you can imagine being in the middle of the North Atlantic and and you know you've got this this crack sound and then there it is. It's like we this ship has been compromised. That's a structural member. So here these guys pass ropes under the ship to keep it keep it together. So they probably saw gaps in the sides and water gushing in. You know, they would have seamen who are on board who were skilled to caulk the seams. So they're in there with hammers, mallets, pushing stuff that they had for such a purpose, but they're losing. It's a losing, losing battle. Mm-hmm. And so they, they think the whole thing's going to come apart. The integrity of the ship is going to be threatened. So they pass ropes under it. I wonder what that was like. I don't know how they did that. Mm. I don't know if someone swam under, what kind of courage it would take to be that guy to pass the ropes under. Um, You know, because you can imagine it going down on one side, but it's just going to keep going down. So how how do they get it to curve around? I really don't know. But they somehow did it. They passed ropes under the ship to hold it together. And so the whole time they're going in, it says fearing that they're going to run into a sandbar. And, and later, that's exactly what happens. They get stuck in a sandbar. They're not moving. And the waves keep beating on the ship and breaks it apart. That's when it actually does sink at the end of this whole encounter. At this point, they're just afraid of it. So you can just think about the fears on these people's minds. It's really a terrifying thing. They just are convinced they're going to die. And so they, you know, they're looking for the sandbars of Sirtis, which was well known, and they, they lower the sea anchor. And the sea anchor is just... I would imagine it'd be something like a parachute or something like that, maybe made of canvas, like a sail or something like that. Mm. Uh, so it would just slow the ship down, keep it from going so fast in one direction. Just need to slow this thing down. And again, that same concept, they're letting the ship be driven along. Uh, verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm that, that they decided to throw the cargo overboard. So it's like, like at this point, we're not trying to make any money. We just want to live. Mm. And, you know, this is the very thing Paul warned about. He said, you're going to lose cargo. I mean, you guys are concerned about money. I'm I'm just arguing economically. This is a bad idea. 
everything you put on this ship is going to end up in the bottom of the Mediterranean. <laughs> it's going down. Mm. Uh, and that's what happened. They throw it overboard so they can save their lives. I think of a hot air balloon that's losing altitude, and they're like throwing weight overboard. So they're just throwing things over. By the way, the same thing happened in the book of Jonah. <laughs> so they're just throwing stuff over. They eventually throw the real problem causer, Jonah, <laughs> overboard, and problem oh, solved. Look at that. <laughs> things calm down a bit. Things calm down at that point, but nothing like that happened here. So they're mm. throwing, throwing uh, cargo overboard. They threw the ship's tackle over. Overboard at that point, that's stuff you need to navigate, but it's still heavy. They're like anything we can do to not get not go down. And so verse 20, they hadn't seen sun or stars, moon, nothing. Just it's just dark. It's it's like it's hellish. And they they're like, they gave up all hope. We're gonna yeah. die. Yeah. So <laughs> you really bad. you really get that sense when when you start throwing things overboard yeah. in order to maintain the integrity of the ship and yeah. try to keep afloat. That yeah. they're making the last ditch effort to survive, to yeah. make it through this. And so that is the outcome of all their efforts is that <sighs> they find themselves despairing and losing all hope. Yeah, again, that 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 movie, uh, Perfect Storm, uh, with George Clooney and uh, some others, um, they're in this, uh, this sword fishing um, boat, you know, a little, rel- relatively small boat. And the final kind of drama for them is they're try- trying to climb a mountain of water. They're trying to churn up the side wall of this mountain of water. It's like 30, 40 foot wave coming at them. And the only way they're going to survive is if they can make it to the top and go back down like a skier would. And But they don't make it and they get rolled over and they're upside down and they take on water quickly and they're going to go down. So, uh, you know, at this point, they're just, they're just thinking there's nothing more we can do. Hmm. Why does Paul remind them of his earlier advice? You mentioned this kind of I told you so statement, um, but why does he remind them of that here and their failure to have heeded it? Right, because he wants to heed them. He wants them to heed him now. That's it. He's not He's not saying, look, I told you so for that, for pride's sake. He's saying, please listen to me now. I'm speaking words that are true mm-hmm. and reasonable. Go back to Acts 26. True and reasonable. These things are true. Listen, I'm the one that warned you this was going to happen, but now let me, I want to tell you something. Don't give up. I need you not to give up. You guys need, there's some things you need to do. Hmm. There's some things the sailors need to keep doing. There's some things we all need to do. We need to pull together. This is pure leadership here. Hmm. I, I think this is one of the greatest displays of leadership. You know, also with Acts 20, where he gives that final charge to the Ephesian elders. But this is leadership in action in the midst of a trial. He is fully confident himself. He presents leadership he gives them clear directions on what to do he inspires them it's it's really a very beautiful picture of leadership i would say for me local church leadership if only i could be a leader like paul in acts 27 mm-hmm. so he says look i'm urging you keep up your courage don't don't be afraid listen to this promise not one of you will be lost but the ship is going to go down that's a very specific prophecy how do you know that well I'll tell you how I know. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve. What a great thing to say. Hmm. I belong to him and I serve him. All right. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. The, an angel came. And imagine being that angel. You're up in, in the peaceful confines of heaven and you get sent down to the heaving deck of a ship to give a message. <laughs> the angel has no fear. The angel <laughs> comes down and stands beside Paul, uh, stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. You're going to Rome and you're going to make it. And God has graciously given you, you, the lives of all who sail with you. That includes a bunch of pagans. 
bunch of, you know, Julius and, and his soldiers, the Roman soldiers, the, the pilot, the sailors, mm. all of them, mm. and all the passengers. God is going to let you save them all. And, and I, I look on this as a picture of intercessory prayer. Paul, I'm sure, was praying for them. You know, I'm ready to die, but they're not. Mm. You know, they're hanging over the pit of hell right now. And so, Lord, would you please spare them until they can hear the gospel, until they can believe and be saved. And so the angel came and said, your prayer is granted. I'll give you, Paul, the lives of those. So this is a picture of intercessory prayer. Think about your lost loved ones, coworkers, neighbors. Who would, would the Lord send an angel say, I have graciously given you the lives of all you asked for? It's a pretty beautiful picture. So none of them are going to die. Now, we mm. need to hold on to that because Paul's going to later give a warning that we need to harmonize with that. But there's a prophecy here that not one of them is going to drown. Yeah, it's a powerful picture of Paul's leadership, as you said, but also of God's grace toward these sailors through yeah. Paul. Yeah. And they're, they're on the verge of death, and right. God grants because of Paul, their lives to him. I also want to say this is a beautiful picture of the power of the ministry of the word. Mm. I see myself as best I can to be like Paul on the deck of a ship in the middle of a storm, using words to what end? To give people hope mm. and to give people strength. Yeah. That's what we do when we preach. Wes, that's what you do when you lead worship. We get up and we speak and we sing and we, we minister so that people will have hope so that they will be strong and do the works that they need to do. That's beautiful, a beautiful picture of the ministry of the word there. Yeah, what a, what a powerful verse, even as I was just reading the next verse here, verse 25, for those who preach the word to mm -hmm. uh, have this on their minds as they do that work. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, exactly as we've been told in God's word. We can have confidence and instill right. hope and courage in others. Nevertheless, we need to run aground on some island. <laughs> don't know right. which one, but we are going to sink. That's so, right. That's right. And so. I think that's practical too. It's like, don't, when that happens, don't think I wasn't right. Yeah. I'm telling you that's going to happen, but yeah. we're not going to drown. Yeah. It's like, how is that? How is the ship going down? I don't know. Yeah. But I'm just telling you, God told me nobody's going to drown. It makes me think of Jesus' statement to his disciples. You know, in this world, you will have troubles. There's yeah. there's some things coming you need to be aware of, but take heart. Exactly. I am with you. I have overcome the world. Yeah, so. And also uh, the same purpose where Jesus said, I've told you now ahead of time. Right. So that when it happens, you will believe that I am he. Paul at a lesser lo level says, I've told you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll believe that I'm speaking the truth. So besides Paul telling them, how did the sailors know when they were actually about to run aground and what did they do as a result? Right, this is just more nautical stuff. They're taking soundings. So that would be a weighted rope that they throw overboard, like you can imagine tied to some chunks of metal and they throw it overboard and they uh, go, they measure the, the length of line until it hits bottom. Uh, sometimes they would put uh, wax in it so they could pick up some stuff from the bottom and, and learn some things that way, but that might have been a later technology. Uh, sand and broken shell, something like that. So they're taking soundings and they find that the water is, in my translation, it says 120 feet deep. So it translates, uh, what do you have? 30 fathoms or uh, 20, 20 fathoms, 20 fathoms mm -hmm. and then, and then you 15. know, 15. So at any rate, we can see the numbers dwindling. So they're getting closer and closer. So you can imagine the surface of the ocean and then down below, there is a contour, like an inverted or, or maybe, yeah, like a, like a mountain range inverted or something like that upside down, going down in that direction. And so you could see, you know, they're coming up to meet. So we're coming to land. We're coming to an island. 
What does verse 30 teach us about human nature? Well, at that moment, they're, they're afraid of the rocks. Obviously, that's what sinks ships, and they have good reason to think that. And so um, they are, it says they drop four anchors from the stern. They don't want to move, and they're prayed for daylight. They want to be able to see so they can avoid the rocks, which is reasonable. Um, and then in verse 30, as you mentioned, um, the sailors, uh, with the nautical skill, they say, we're out of here. And selfishly, Hmm. They basically steal the lifeboat, you know, and the sailors are preparing the lifeboat. Paul sees what they're doing, understands the significance, goes to the soldiers and say, if these men, these sailors, don't stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, here's an important aspect of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We already have a prophecy that not one of them is going to be drowned. But a few verses later, Paul's saying, if these guys don't stay with the ship, you're going to drown. How do you put that together? These guys got to stay with the ship. (laughs) (laughs) So whatever needs to happen Mm. to make that happen will happen. But that doesn't mean there aren't contingencies. So all contingencies will happen. Mm. So for example, ultimately, salvation. All of the elect chosen by name before the foundation of the world, will finally be saved and be in heaven, Mm. will be raised up at the last day. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up at the last day. Oh, then they don't need to hear the gospel. No, they do. If they don't hear the gospel, they'll be lost. They'll go to hell. Mm. Similar pattern here. Well, then they'll hear the gospel. So this is a, an acted out display of divine sovereignty and human responsibility or contingency. It is necessary for the sailors to stay on board in order for the soldiers not to drown. None of the soldiers are going to be drowned. Therefore, the sailors are going to stay on board. By the way, another part of this is heeding the warnings. Paul has no power. He has no authority, but he tells them the words. If these men don't stay with the ship, you're going to drown. That also means that Paul's words had to be effective, heeded, listened to, and they were. The centurion believing Paul ordered his soldiers to cut away the lifeboat and let it drop into the sea so the sailors had to stay. What does Paul's ministry to these people as they suffer teach us about Paul? Yeah, just compassion, leadership. I already said leadership. Um, it just, he, he also practicality. He says, look, guys, we haven't eaten anything for two weeks. It's been 14 days. Now, parenthetically, I've never heard of a storm like that. I mean, they don't last 14 days. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it was like the storm for 14 days or just the sea was turbulent for 14 days after the three-day storm. Hmm. I don't know what. All I know is Paul says, look, you haven't eaten anything for 14 days. You've got to eat something to keep up your strength. So look, I'm telling you, and he reassures them based on what the angel said, not a hair of your head will be lost. You are not going to die, but you need to eat to keep up your strength. So eat. And so then he sets an example. Mm -hmm. They're all encouraged. And he gave thanks, took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, broke it and ate. And so he's like, look, this is how you do it. See the bread? Thank you, God, for the food. Thank you for providing. Now watch me chew it. Very good. And I'm swallowing it. You should do the same. And 276 on board gave them. They all ate together. Mm. And they took all the food that they could eat. 
they all filled their bellies and then they dumped all the food overboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're lightening the ship, getting rid of the food. When you're getting rid of the food, you're yeah, about that, done. That's it. You know you're at the end. <laughs> yeah. For sure. How did the final shipwreck come about and why does the centurion prevent the soldiers from killing all of the prisoners? Yeah. So they, they see um, – they didn't recognize where they were but they saw uh, uh, Sandy – uh, harbor, you know, place with a soft landing place. So God just provided for them. It's amazing. And so they decided they're going for the sandy beach. They're going to run the ship as- ashore there and they can just get off and then jump down and they'll be on the, on the, on the shore, the sandy shore. So they got rid of the four anchors they had from the stern and they make way. They turn the, sh- they, they, um, Untied the ropes that held the rudder, so they're 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 live now. They're moving, and so they're going to go. They're going to make their way for this sandy beach, um, and so they lift up the foresail to the wind, but they hit a sand sandbar, and so that's that's just realistic. It's just really remarkable all the details mm-hmm. in this chapter. So they didn't quite make it, and they hit the sandbar. And by the way, that goes back to your very 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 first question about we. Luke was there watching mm. all of this. He's an eyewitness to all these things, and he's just a man of detail. So mm. he's like, all right, we were trying to do this, but we didn't make it, so we hit the sandbar. And then the bow stuck fast, but the stern wouldn't move. So now it's like you know, you're holding up some guy's chin so that the, the, with the left arm so the right arm can belt it. You know? So that's basically a ship's held in place so the surf can pound it to bits, mm. and that's what happens. So they get pounded to bits, broken to pieces. The soldiers say, look, I'd rather have them all dead than that any should escape. It's kind of like the mentality of Herod. Mm. Better the innocent should be killed than the guilty die, the guilty being the baby Messiah. And so that's a terrible way to look at it. But he's willing to kill. Clearly, we had nothing to do with it, babies, to make sure that the one he wants to kill doesn't escape. Mm. So they're killing all these people, guilty or innocent, so that no one can escape. That was their plan. But the centurion... Because he cared about Paul, that goes back to the whole thing, is the connection between the centurion and Paul. Mm. Because he wanted to spare Paul's life, prevented the soldiers from carrying out their plan. And in this way, everybody made it safely. They dove overboard. There's some flotsam and jetsam and broken things and all that. And they make it in and not a single person died. It's really quite a remarkable story. What is that final word that all were brought safely to land teach us about God's power and his promises. Well, it goes back to the statement made by the angel, not one of them will drown, and they didn't. Um, And the far more important statement, which I just quoted a few moments ago from John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me uh, will not perish, but I'll raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up on the last day is a more significant version of in this way everyone reached land and safety. Mm. So God is able to save people. And he is a detailed God. He understands all 276 of these people. He's watching them all. His eye is on them. If if 275 of them made it and one drowned, Paul's the, the words would not have been fulfilled. Hmm. So not a single one of them drowned. And so that shows me the sovereignty of God, the power of God, and the kindness of God also. And I would imagine that a good number of them are up in heaven. They listened to Paul's message about Christ crucified and resurrected once they got on board, uh, you know, on the island, and they uh, were saved not just physically but eternally. So it's pretty encouraging. What a great story. Hmm. Any final thoughts on this chapter as a whole? 
no, I think it was, it's just been marvelous to walk through it and to see God's providence. We've made a lot of theological points from it and it's just a great story. And now we're ready for the, for the final chapter, last couple of podcasts. It'll be pretty exciting. Hmm. Well, this has been episode 48 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. And we do want to invite you to join us next time for episode 49 entitled Paul in Malta and Rome, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.